You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. From baseball's top personalities. The great Chris Russo joins us once again. To the game's top players. Joining us is the All-Star. Matt Chapman with us. You never know what stories you're going to hear. If you make your way down here, I, I might be able to make some time and go out there and see the great Chris Townsend. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Welcome to another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Today, we're going to be taking a look at the NL East because that's what we've been doing on A's Cast Live, breaking down every single division. Chip Hale from the Washington Nationals, an old friend will stop by. Another old friend, Ron Washington with the Atlanta Braves. Kevin Franzen with the Philadelphia Phillies. Bay Area Kids, San Jose State Spartan, and Bellarmine Bell will be with us. We'll talk to Howie Rose from the New York Mets and Dave Van Horn from the Miami Marlins. We're breaking down the NL East. We'll start with what a magical run it was last year for the Washington Nationals and what to expect in 2020. Here's our old friend, Chip Hale. An old friend of the program is stopping by, and one of the cool things getting ready for this interview was going to his Wikipedia page. And it now says 2019 World Series champion. Chip Hale is with us. Chip, <laughs> I th- it's got to be pretty cool. I mean, to now have that, I mean, just incredible. It is. It was an incredible ride. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's nice to have it on there. But as in everything in baseball, um, Chris, we always remember the people. You know, that's the most important thing. And, and the great thing obviously when we went back to spring training we brought up most of them back the only one i think we were missing um from our main players was anthony rendon but to see those guys and on an everyday basis really brought everything back and then to come home again you know and obviously shut everything down was a tough thing to do well one of the things that we've been doing and the a's want us to do is to entertain people in northern california here, here, as everybody's on lockdown, and and we're trying to bring on as as familiar as many familiar voices as possible. And of course, yours is very familiar with the, our fans, so we really appreciate the time. And we're breaking down every single division. We're we're in the NL East now. And you think about that ride you guys had last year, kind of like the A's. You got out to a slow start, and then you just caught fire and took it all the way to the championship. No, no doubt about it. Uh, it, it it was like you said. It was an incredible ride. Very very similar to the A's. I remember after we had the great uh, wild card win against Milwaukee, I texted uh, Billy and Bob, and I said, "Well, I'll be watching you guys tomorrow night. And hopefully, it's not so hard for you guys." And I was hoping because I felt like uh, you know both those winners, you know whoever was going to be, we're going to have a good chance to really go deep into the playoffs. And and of course, Tampa took. Houston as far as they could go, uh, and we were able to make it to the World Series. So I was hoping that the A's would, would meet us there so I could see a lot of good friends. Yeah, that would have been great. And, of course, you know, all, all I mean, you, you had a few former A's on the team with you. Yeah, we did. And, um, you know, it, it's funny when you think about all those guys that we had with the A's in 12, 13, and 14 when I was there and, and went to the playoffs and the way we did it and just the um, – 
just the toughness that, that Bob kind of brought to that group and, and brought them together. But yeah, that, that stuff helped with Doolittle. Um, you know, he battled a tough year and to be able to come back into the playoffs and really help us um, to win, uh, you know, in, in, you know, in, in the toughest game because he, he had had a time there. Where we didn't know if he was going to come back at all. Yeah, and I, and I think about our old friend, Kurt Suzuki. wasn't that long ago I was doing an interview with him when he was with the Twins, and he really <laughs> didn't know how much longer he was going to play. And we were like, what are you going to do once you think you're done with your career? Do you want to get into coaching? And here Kurt Suzuki is catching and winning a World Series. Yeah, and that was one of the keys to our whole you know, playoff run was, was the ability of Kurt to be able to play more than really he should have. And that, that's really what led to the World Series being tough for him uh, because we just basically ran him into the ground. Um, at his age and the injuries that he's had, uh, we really wanted to catch him, you know, once every, you know, four or five days. And ended up he was catching uh, three or four in a row at times, especially down the stretch to make the, the uh, postseason and then to get, you know, in there. Um, he was basically Max's main guy and Steven Strasburg's. And, of course, um, you know, uh, Annabelle Sanchez, who's, who he he had in uh, Atlanta before. So he was catching three of those guys consistently, and he just ran himself into the ground and his, uh, basically just couldn't even catch in, in the final game of Game 7 for us. But yeah. he was so key, Chris, so key. Oh, yeah. And, as we, you know, we were rooting for you. I mean, obviously, you know, the team you're playing we're not big fans of. And, and of course, with all the former A's, uh, we were we were rooting for you guys so hard. And one of the great things about this World Series is it wasn't about bullpens anymore. It was about starting pitching. Your started your starting pitching carried you to the World Series, and it felt a little old school. And it was great. Just talk about those arms that you had, just night after night, just battling your starting staff. Yeah, I think it was uh, it was a classic one with Houston too. I mean, both both staffs. Um, led that way and when, when I went to uh, Washington in 18 that's kind of how you know Dave, Dave Martinez and uh, and Mike Rizor Jim had developed to develop that team and, and planned for those starters to be key and just to get into the dance and we knew when you had Scherzer Strasburg you know going back to back the first year now when we add Patrick Corbin from the Diamondbacks the lefty um, it was going to be huge for us, and we, and that's how we had to be. Uh, to be frank with you, our you know early start and our struggles, we our bullpen was really really scuffling, and and starters were having to just you know go on that gas pedal, and we were like, okay, well we're going to go as long as we can with these guys. But uh, thank goodness we made a few trades, got some guys hot in the bullpen. But yeah, our starters were fantastic. Uh, Max was is Max. Uh, Steven probably had the best year. Of, of that group. I mean, he was fantastic. He ended up being the World Series MVP. Um, but he made um, so many key starts for us in big games, uh, including game six in the World Series, um, that, you know, the, to, to clinch against the Dodgers. Uh, just incredible starts against great teams. And then the guys we were facing, like you said, it was an old-school World Series where you're going to let this guy go as long as he can go. And then basically we were taking – and plugging in our the guy that had two or day, three days off, and he was our main reliever. So whether it was Corbin or Strauss or even Max, they were coming in in the sixth or seventh inning to, to try to give it, get us some length at the end there. And I think about Strasburg. When he was shut down years ago, and the organization took a lot of criticism because then they lost in the postseason. 
How big do you think this was for the organization and Strasburg to finally win and, and get that the past away from you, that, that whole shutdown situation? It was enormous. Uh, I think, you know, we had so many different coaches from, from different places that had never experienced um, what had happened. And you could just you could see it in the in the um, wild card game against Milwaukee. The tightness and the nervousness of guys in, and just look at their face and looking over into the ownership box and seeing the learners. And you could just see it like, oh, these guys have done so well, but I, you know this is probably it. You know, here we go again. You know, the, the Brewers are going to beat us. And, and and when Soto gets the hit and the ball bounces funny and everybody scores. You know, it just loosened it up, and it just it just got those guys to say, you know what, we can do this, and we can move on. And, and even though it was a one game series, um, I think that one game changed it for those guys. And Strauss, it was so key for us because anytime we needed it, starting obviously, and then coming out of the bullpen, which these guys have never done. I mean, it was almost like in one when I was with the Diamondbacks minor leagues as a manager, and we went to those World Series games. And to watch Randy come out of that bullpen, it changes the whole group. I mean, the, the team is so energized by those guys actually doing that and putting themselves at risk. Let's face it, you're putting yourself at risk for injury. No doubt. And, and, and yeah, those are, those are some great times. Diamondbacks, Yankees, and Randy Johnson coming out of the pen after yeah. game six. Now, you mentioned Juan Soto. It's hard to believe that this kid is this talented, and Chip, he's only 21 years old. It's incredible, Chris. He's one of my. Uh, I have a. I had an issue with the team because I. They always said I favored one. You know, the kid was 19 when he comes to the big leagues, and he is just carrying us on his shoulders. And um, and I, it was so, so protective of him because I feel like he's you're like your son out there. He's just he's just a baby. Can't drink. You know, can't do this. He's, he's uh, you know, you're always the umpires are picking on him. So we were all, I was always a little more uh, protective of them. So they finally they made me a jersey after we had uh, clinched to get into the playoffs. The players presented me a jersey, and it had my number on it. In the back, it said, Hail Soto, like I was his father. So, um, you know, I was very proud of him. Um, if you know him and you get to know him, uh, he's, he's a classy kid, and he's, I think, one of those once-in-a-generation players that, um, you know, he just – just can't wait to see what he's going to improve on next. And he, he has such a thirst for the knowledge and the competition that uh, there's no player that I've been around in a long, long time um, that I just think is going to be so, so good. Yeah, and, and you mentioned Rendon leaving as a free agent and going to the Angels. I mean, that's really – I look at your guys' team. you still got just about everybody, and you can make another run at this thing. It's just how are you going to replace Rendon's numbers? It's going to be tough, and we saw that, uh, Chris. We were really, you know, we're searching for guys to kind of plug into the three holes. Everybody's like, who's going to hit behind Soto? Who's going to protect Soto? Well, the bottom line was Soto hit fourth. Anthony hit third. Juan protected him. And then after that, we had the great year from Howie Kendrick. Um, and the playoffs and World Series, of course, Zim came back and was really, really good to protect Juan. But, uh, you know, we signed – Starting Castro was a really good player. He was in our division East of Miami and had a great second half. And is he going to play third for us or is he going to play second? Um, we have the young kid, Carter Keyboom. We're trying to trying to get him ready. But you can see it. You can see it in the games, even though they're spring training games. And we have a really veteran team, so you kind of have to throw the, the, the games out, you know, the numbers of, of those spring training games. 
you could see there was that guy that, that everybody sort of counted on in RBI situations, get on in a big spot in Tony. So um, they'll have to be developed, you know, over over time and, and maybe a struggle to start to try to, you know, figure out who's going to hit third. Is it going to be launch moves up there? Um, who knows? I mean, it's going to be a tough one. I mean, we got the we have the Bellerman grad, uh, Eric Bain, who will uh, who will battle and, and hit behind one or hit, you know, somewhere in that spot who was who really exciting in spring training. Um, it's just a matter of how often we can get him in there. You know, you grew up in the Bay Area, and right now we've been honoring the 72, 73, and 74 Oakland A's teams who won three straight World Series. We've been running the games here on A's Cast, and they've been showing the games on television on NBC Sports California. We're now into the 1974 World Series. You would have been, what, 8, 9, and 10 during that time. What do you remember as a little kid watching the A's win those World Series? Well, you know what's funny is, I, as a little kid, I, I remember obviously watching and being so excited. Um, we didn't get a, you know, I grew up in Cupertino at that time, so we didn't get a chance to go over to the Coliseum much. We would mostly go to the Candlestick uh, for our games, but obviously when the game was on TV and watching the World Series, it was exciting. I think I became more of a fan of those three years in, the, in that group of players as I got older and was able to meet those guys and and. I'd be honest with you, because I watched the set. What was it? The um, the Mets uh, A's game seven. I think it was Kenny Holtzman and Matt Lack. Uh, I watched it the other day. It was sitting out in the sun in my backyard here in Tucson, and I was watching game seven on on YouTube. It was funny. I watched the whole game, and it was so exciting because that was to me that was the epitome of tough, gritty baseball. Bert Campanaris. That whole group of guys, um, it was fun to watch and, and be able to be an A and meet those guys later on because, of course, during those, those three years, we got to do a lot of their, their um, anniversary things. And to meet those guys was incredible for me. I, it's an honor. Yeah, and, and how crazy is it watching old school baseball where there's no score, there's no any, it's just you just watch the game. I mean, if you come into a game mid-game, you have no idea what's going on. No, I know. And, you know, even the announcers, you know, to see those guys playing games again was really fun for me to listen to because, you know, people, I think kids today don't realize, they, they can turn on during the season when we were actually, you know, they could get the package and they can watch any game they want anytime. We didn't get that. I mean, it was very rare the games were on TV. Um, so it, it, it was fun to watch. I, I you know, we, we always battle back and forth with uh, some of the hitters. Like, hey, if you choke up, you know, good things can happen with two strikes. You spread out a little bit. And you watch these guys in, in these games, in the, those World Series, and they're choked up almost to the trademark. Uh, so I would I'd take pictures on the TV and send it to some of our players and say, see, you can choke up and be successful. Yeah, and my producer's dying for me to ask you this because it was a phenomenon. How are you guys going to replace Baby Shark? We don't know. In fact, my wife and I were talking about it the other day because we did uh, we did a little Zoom. Um, Ryan Zimmerman raised about two hundred fifty thousand dollars for the people on the front lines of the, the nurses and doctors and, and everybody at the hospitals. And we did a Zoom, we did a Game 7 Zoom where they had the game playing and then we would come on and, and comment. And they we actually got uh, Gerardo Parra to come on from Japan. He's over there playing in Japan right now. So he was on. And 
it was funny because we were like, yeah, you know, there's no way are we going to, because to be frank with you, after all the celebrations and everything, it, could, it got to be a little bit, it got to be a little much after a while. So um, <laughs> uh, we said, are we going to have to do this again? Or are we going to try to get something like this? But it was funny. We, there were times David would say, Chip, let's just put, let's, let's have uh let's have par a hit just for the fact that we can, uh, you know, get the fans out of their seats and get them going. Maybe we'll get something going. <laughs> that's how, that's how it got to be. Oh, that's great. Just what a special year. And we're so happy for you. Thank you for coming on. It's great to hear your voice. Be safe. And hopefully we'll be talking to you once this season gets going. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate you having me. Chip is such a good dude. He's such a, I mean, such a good guy. And it was great all the years he was here with the Oakland Athletics. Also, Oakland A's great. Ron Washington. Truly one of the great coaches in A's history, now doing his thing down in Atlanta with a very talented Atlanta Braves team. Here's Wash. Wash, how are you? I'm doing quite well. How about yourself? We're doing good. Just hopefully getting ready for a season. But the number one thing that we've been doing here with A's Cast Live is we, we want to bring on familiar voices. And obviously yours inside this organization your relationship with our fan base, it really means a lot. And just to, to hear from you, I know we're going to talk about the Atlanta Braves, but more importantly, just to check in with you, uh, it's great to hear your voice, and thank you for coming on. Well, thank you for having me, and it's always great to talk with you guys, uh, you know, and uh, hopefully um, at some point uh, we'll get a chance to get back on the field and the fans can see some baseball. You know, we've been celebrating the World Series teams of 72, 73, and 74. We just, we just saw game one last night on NBC Sports California, uh, the game one of the 1973 World Series. Coming up on Thursday, we're going to have game one of the 1974 World Series between the A's and the Dodgers. You, you were a, a teenager just starting to become a professional at that point. What do you remember about those great A's teams? Well, uh, I, I remember how they, uh, when they took the field, they looked like they was confident. Uh, they had pitchers that could, could pitch, and they had guys that could catch the ball. They had speed. I mean, I was down the street in San Jose at the time in 1974 with the Kansas City Royals. I just made it to high A ball. And um, on off day, we went down and got a chance to see him play. And um, that's what I noticed about them. Um, they were very confident. They pitched the ball. They caught the ball. They ran the bases. Uh, they was a quality uh, team. And I guess that's why they went uh, three years in a row um, to the World Series and won it. I forgot about that. You played at San Jose Muni. That's right. In 1974, and I got the chance to see my first big league game in 1974. Well, Wash, I played at San Jose State, so that was our home field also, San Jose. <laughs> it's pretty – because I remember, like, it, when, when, when I first got to San Jose State in 1991, you know, they had the – you know, whether it was the San Jose Bees and they had all the legendary – San Jose Bees. Yeah, George yeah. Brett played in San Jose also. So, yeah, that's great. You played in San Jose. That's awesome. Yes. Matter of fact, in 1974, as a team, we uh, led all the baseball and stole the bases. I think as a team, we stole something like 350-something in one year. 
You know, unfortunately, during your career, and it was just an era of of work stoppage, unfortunately, labor strife happened all the time in baseball. Just take us through what it's like when you go through an issue where you can't play games. Obviously, this pandemic is different, but you've played in shortened seasons. What is that like? Well, it's uh, it's strange, number one, but, uh, you know, it's satisfying because uh, you certainly missed a, a good part of uh, the game of baseball, and you're just so thrilled to get back. So um, it's boring sitting around. Um, I've never been home at this time of the year, uh, so it's quite boring. Uh, but, you know, you try to keep in touch with the guys and, uh, you know, see how they're doing. But there really, really isn't much you can do. And at this moment, it's different because uh, you don't know if we'll play or not. So, you know, and the whole thing is uh, how the health organization will allow or won't allow out there. And it's not our call anymore. Now we just got to wait and see. In the past, it was our call, you know, either on the on the owner's side or on the player's side. It was our call. Right now, it's not our call. Yeah, and, and when, when you have a shortened season, you know, we traditionally say, you know, hey, it's, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. In a shortened season, it becomes a sprint. How important is it for you to get out to a hot start? Well, in, in that scenario, it's very important that you get out to a hot start, which is what you want to do in any scenario. It's not just that scenario, in any scenario. So, um, you know, it gives what it does do, it gives a, an organization that may have thought they had a chance, a great chance, because who's playing baseball the best at the time for the short period of time is the teams that'll be up in there. And, you know, sometimes uh, the best team don't start getting things together until you get about two months, a month and a half into the season, you know. And if, uh, if you play a short season and uh, one of the other teams in your division that wasn't supposed to be there messed around and get hot early, which you've seen, I want to call them bad teams, but you've seen teams that's not supposed to be in the playoffs get hot early, but then people say, well, that won't last. And, and for sure, it don't last. So um, it gives an opportunity to an organization that, uh, you know, all they could do is, was hope for a couple years down the road. Yeah, I think about your guys' organization right now, and there's special times going on with the Atlanta Braves. You won 97 games last year, and and you just look at all the talent that's in your lineup. Young talent, talent in their prime. What is it like for the Atlanta Braves being around them, knowing that, you know what, you guys, when this thing does get started, you will be the favorites in the NL East? Well, I, I think the, the, the one thing that uh, gives us the most hope is our young kids are gamers. Uh, they come to the ballpark every day and prepare for one thing, to be the best that they can be. Uh, they're not just coming there to go through the motion. They come in there to whip somebody's butt every single day. And you actually don't find that in you. And that's a credit to the organization because, uh, you know, it, 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 it's not hard for us as the leaders and the coaches uh, to get them to understand what it takes daily to go out there and play. They want that information, and they try to take that information and carry it out there. And that's the beauty of uh, the Atlanta Braves right now with all that youth that they have. Uh, they know opportunity is there. They know they're, they're pretty good. 
And not only are they pretty good, but they come every day and they work at maintaining being pretty good. And finding that in youth is hard. So it's a, it's a very special situation right now with the Atlanta Braves. Well, one thing that I take away from your club in 2019 is you guys were 47 and 34 on the road. That tied with the Dodgers for the best record in the National League. To win on the road like that, Wash, is something special. Well, it is. And, and you got to have some, some, some good pitching. you got to have some tremendous defense. Uh, you got to have uh, great base running. And you got to have some luck. And, um, you know, we've, we've, we were fortunate enough to have all of that. Our pitchers didn't matter to them where they were. They pitched the ball and they gave us a chance. Our guys didn't matter where they were. Uh, they created havoc. Um, whether they was in the batter's box or whether they was on the base pads. And they certainly made teams earn um, on the defensive side whatever they got. And when you can do that, um, especially on the road, um, you're going to have the success that you just described. You know, I, I, I know how Billy Bean feels about you, and a lot of people in this game feel you're one of the best defensive coaches to who have ever been in Major League Baseball and watching these A's teams from the 70s under Dick Williams, it was all about fundamentals. You know, you think about baseball today, everybody's talking about velocity and launch angle and home runs. But Wash, even in today's baseball, still, it's about defense. Defense wins, defense wins championships, and you understand that as much as anybody. Well, you know, you have to be able to catch the ball. You know, they got this old saying that it's 27 outs and you can't be giving up 29 or 30 of them and expect to be, and expect to be successful. So, um, you know, if you can just give up the 27 outs each and every day. And the main thing is this. When a ball is put in play and it's, it's supposed to be an out, you just want the out. Now, it don't take a whole lot of, 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 of being the greatest in the world to do that. But if, it's, if your mindset is that, then – that's where you go. And, um, you know, that's the one thing that I've always been fortunate enough. Even when I was in Oakland, I was fortunate enough to have players that cared about more than one part of the game of baseball. Yes, they may have the ability to swing the bat, but more than anything else, they also knew and, and worked at the ability to, when a ball is hit in my area, to make the play. So it was a pride thing for the 25 guys that we had on the club. And, um, uh, and that's exactly what it takes. And, you know, you got your launch angles, like you say. Home runs are beautiful. But when you get a pitcher on that mound that has his stuff that night, it might be one or two runs that wins that game. And that means there can't be no mess-ups on the defensive side. So defense, you bring every day. Offense, it just comes if you got a pitcher out there that you can figure out. No offense will happen if there's a pitcher out there that got his stuff and doing what he want to do. But – if it got to take one run to win a ball game, I would like to be on the side that get that one run. So that means we played defense. You know, Acuna Jr., the talent is off the charts. You get to watch him on an everyday basis. If you could compare him to anybody from the past, who would you compare Acuna Jr. to? Wow. He is special. And um, if I could compare him to one person, that I was around uh, for, for five years and watched him uh, develop and become a superstar, it would have to be Kirby Puckett. Um, because 
Kirby hit with power. He ran the bases. He hit for average. Uh, he always came through in big situations. Um, and that's Ronald Kuna, but that's a growing Ronald Acuna. In a, in a quicker time than a Kirby Puckett. A Kirby Puckett guy that started doing it in about four years. Ronald Kuhn started doing it as soon as he hit the big leagues. He's special. But, you know, until you start to get in five, six years and you have been consistent, it's, uh, it's hard to just say this guy is going to do this and this guy is going to do that. But he has the ability to do whatever it is that he wants to do. It's going to always be up to Ronald Acuna and how much he wanted and how bad he wanted to perform and how good he wanted to be. And He's you, good. You, oh, yeah. And you, and you have one of the best all-around players. When you think offensively and defensively, Freddie Freeman. I mean, we, we like to talk about Matt Olson with us, who's great defensively, has won two gold gloves. But talk to us about how good Freddie Freeman is. Well, Freddie is not a rah-rah guy. Freddie shows up every day and, and prepares and go about his business. And um, but if he recognized that you are not pulling your weight, he has a way of just pulling those young kids on the side and relate to them. And that's leadership in the game today. In the game when I was out there, you was called out, but not today. But uh, that's what Freddie. Freddie comes every day. Freddie wants to play every day. Freddie wants to be in a situation where uh, he can help his team be successful every day. And along with that attitude that Freddie brings, it just infiltrates everybody on the team. And I think that's why we young kids can come and relax because they have a leader that shows up every day and leads the way. And he does it every day, leads the way. And you know what? Your old disciple is the same way in Marcus Simeon. What Marcus Simeon has turned into as a man, as a person, we know what a great husband, father he is, but all the work. And, 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 and you know, with this A's team, with a lot of young players, Marcus, the fact that how hard he works and he plays 162 games. I mean, how, how could you be a young player and not work hard when Marcus is out there busting it every single day? Just how proud of you. Uh, to watch Marcus Simeon continue to grow and be one of the best players in baseball? Um, I'm as proud as, uh, as, as anyone can be as if he was my son. And, and I do believe that the A's organization has to be proud, too, of what Billy Bean did. Uh, when, 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 when I did have an opportunity to come to Oakland and work with him, it was because Billy Bean and Dave Foss and Bob Melvin and that organization saw something in Marcus because any other place where Marcus would have been at the time when he was in Oakland, they would have said, he can't do this. Get him out of here. He can't do that. He can't do that. But they didn't do that. They stayed patient. And he already had leadership skills. You can look at him. He's just a tremendous young man. So he had leadership skills. Um, it was no doubt he had something in that back. And then the rest of his game just had to come together. And you know, I just happened to be one of the tools that was able to guide him to understand how good he can be. And, but that only happened if the kids you're trying to guide put in the time and work. And you said earlier, Marcus Simeon works and he's legit. Um, he's a leader. He's a winner. Uh, he's a great person. He's a nice father. He's a husband. Uh, he's everything you would like to see in a person. And uh, he's very humble. 
And um, I was very proud to be able to work with him. And I certainly thank the AIDS organization for giving me that opportunity. Wash, it's always great hearing your voice. Thank you for taking the time today. Be safe, and I can't wait to talk to you again once this season gets started. Be well. I will, and you, you do the same. Thank you so much for having me. Always great catching up with Ron Washington, and he always gives us his time, and we always appreciate it. Truly one of the best coaches we've ever seen around here in A's territory, and I hope someday he gets another chance to manage. Now, a buddy of mine left San Jose, left the Bay Area to take a full-time gig with the Philadelphia Phillies. He's one of the great San Jose State Spartan baseball players, grew up in the South Bay, and now makes Philly his home. And he is now a broadcaster for the Philadelphia Phillies. Here is Kevin Fran. Well, now joining us, are, are, are we in the Bay or are we in Philly, Kevin Franzen? Uh, we're in Philly. Yeah, we're in Philly. How are you? I'm doing well. We miss you. No, you don't. No, you don't. Yes, we do. I well, was thinking. How would you? Here's the thing. Here's the thing. How how do you miss me when everyone is just isolated in a house? I got curbside service at Hopper <laughs> the other day. Oh, the Bellarmine boy is doing a good job over there. Yeah, because yeah, you know it's it's like for all of us uh, in the industry, takeout has become king. And I know for our restaurants, but Gee, it was. So uh, as your old coach and very good friend and my uh, old teammate and best friend, Dean Madsen, we, we learned of a curbside service at our favorite brewery. And uh, if you want normalcy, uh, that's kind of helped out. Now, the question is, oh, no, I, I shouldn't bring that up. That, that's wrong. I was going to say, you just crack it open right there and be like, oh, just like old times right here. <laughs> and just the smell of the hunger. Yeah, just the smell. You're like, OK, good. I only have to drive about a half mile down the road. We're good. Well, you know, the thing where, and of course you grew up in the area that, that, that I live in and I can tell you, you know, here well, in you, you live in the house, you live in the house I've been in many times. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's walking around across at the park. I mean, everybody's out. What's it like there in Philly? Quiet, quiet people staying in. And, and, uh, I don't know if you, you recognize the lack of, of people just, waving saying hi like you're yeah. away from everyone you got the social distancing going on but you can still at least wave from across the street you know that's one of the things that i've noticed uh here when people are out walking which is i'm gonna say rare uh and it's been nice weather lately um it, it just it it's it's sad it sucks it's it's uncomfortable at times but I, it, it's for good reasons yeah, I've been riding the bike a lot, and I, I, I've ridden down to the Shark Tank, and it's weird, no one around. I, you know downtown San Jose. It's uh, pretty much a ghost town, but uh, definitely some tough times, and hopefully some things are going to start changing. I, I know we've done a good job here in California. How's Philly been? Uh, well, you know, I'm, on the, I'm in South Jersey, so I'm like five minutes away from Philly, like literally right over the river. So we're considered Philly. Philly, uh, the Montgomery County had some early bad areas, uh, settled down quite a bit. Jersey up north is where it's bad, but that's closer to New York City. Down here, very mild. Um, but again, the governor around here, Murphy and Cuomo, they've done a hell of a job, just like Gavin had done in California and shutting everything down uh, and, and making sure that, you know, the people – um, knew that the people that were, were running the state had their had their back. And and around here, I feel like they've done a good job. 
Um, but again, I mean, it's, it, it's all normal. I, I feel here for us because we haven't met a lot of people since we moved here. So we're just like, ah, yeah, this is like normal right now. We've self-isolated from everyone anyways. Yeah. So let's talk a little baseball as your Phillies last year, 81 and 81, and it cost Gabe Kapler his job. And then now you're, you're bringing in a guy who I think the minute he steps into the clubhouse, the minute he addresses the team at spring training, hey, this is Joe Girardi. This is a World Series champion as a player. This is a World Series champion as a manager. He's a smart guy, went to Northwestern. What was the change like from Gabe Kapler to Joe Girardi? Ooh, that's a, I mean, we can go into so many different ways. So if you, if you talk about being personable and everything, Gabe's the same way as Joe, right? As far as he'll, he's very open. He's, he's, he talks to you. He asks all the media members questions and, and all this stuff. Joe's very interactive and everything, but there's just something about knowing an adult in the room. Right. You know, when the leader's there and that's the difference. I feel like at, at, at times you felt it with Gabe, not all the time with Joe, he walks into a room, he doesn't say a word and everyone's like, Phew. and that's a good thing. That's what you need. Um, you know, he's my God, I was at an event. It was one of his first events that he had done here in, uh, in Philly uh, during Thanksgiving time. And it was for all the charities and, and, and everyone that they had, you know, been involved with and still involved with and he got up and spoke like no one asked him to he asked can i say a few words they said sure why not he went on for five six minutes nothing like extraneous you know one where everyone's like okay it's got to be and and he put i want to say 99 percent of the people in tears it was unreal and it tied into this girl who unfortunately is has a, a, a termination uh, time a period of, of six months. Uh, she has two kids. Uh, she's 28 years old and she got up and spoke and she was supposed to speak and she got up and she didn't know Joe's name. She had no idea anything. She goes, Mr. Manager, I just, can I just say thank you? And for what that, that moment, that day, everyone realized how real he was. There's no script by Joe Girardi. And that's a little bit by Gabe. And I think that's where Gabe is in his comfort zone, right? Is things kind of flowing in the, in the way they're supposed to um, kind of scripted by how, you know, he sees things and, and how they want things planned out. And with, with Joe Girardi, I'm not saying it's, it's, you know, a gunslinger on anything. It, it just, it, there, it's a, it's a different thought process. Uh, the boys love him. I know they had a, a, a fantastic time for five, six weeks with them. Um, and they're, I think that's the one thing that they're, they're missing more than anything is because they really enjoyed their time with them. And, 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 and studying this team, knowing that you were coming on and we're doing every division, every team uh, before uh, we get going again here, uh, you know, a lot of people paid attention to Bryce Harper and, I think a lot of people tried to paint that he had a bad year. <laughs> he, he did not have a bad. This is the most RBI yeah. he's ever driven in in his career. Yeah. Uh, he he kind of lacked on defense his last couple of years. The numbers oh, he showed. was unbelievable. He was hustling. I, I think he, he was he was everything you'd want in that first year. He was Bryce, and I, he's mentioned that he's like, I, and people gave him hell because anything that he says goes to it's it's gasoline right on the fire. Um, and he's like, I just want to be Bryce. I just want, and, and every time that I, I interacted with him as a teammate, uh, his locker was right next to mine and we would talk and, and I would be there early. He'd be there early. 
before all the guys showed up, I mean, it was just, it, you, you fall in love with the kid. People would show up and it was like, he, he, he had a, he almost got to a business like, right. Like he almost had to put on a different persona at that time with Washington this year uh, or last year, as you could say, um, he was Bryce the entire time. The guy that I would talk to before everyone would show up, that was him through the entire time. And to me, that's special. And we got to see it. His teammates, there was no, like, it's hard. When you're when you're in the limelight like he is, and you got to live up to so many things, and, and people come in, and, and you feel like you don't have to win guys over because you're Bryce Harper. He won guys over by being genuine last year. And his play was genuine. And, look, it, I think May, June, it caught up to him not having that spring training. But then July – then August, and then September. I mean, he was special. And to go 35 and 114, I mean, I had him I had him pegged for 45-130 this year because of, you know, JT Real Muto in front of him, Andrew McCutcheon at some point coming back. But uh, more than anything, Reese Hoskins, who struggled so mightily in the second half last year, uh, I think it was going to be one of those comeback seasons for him, and, and it would have benefited everyone. It would have benefited Bryce. I hate to bring it up, but Hoskins hit 180 after the All-Star break. Yeah, I know. It was – check out the strikeouts. A lot of them. You know, the other thing I noticed with your guys' team, the number 258, team record number of home runs allowed by Phillies pitchers in 2019. They're all all hit by the Braves, too, it felt like. (laughs) (laughs) Is is a little bit of that, though, the ballpark ballpark effect? No, no, no. It was was pitching coach who was fired – that I, I think implemented the worst thing that they could possibly do. Uh, look, the analytics are there. The analytics are real. But if the analytics don't match up, and you being a pitcher, former pitcher, uh, if you don't throw a certain pitch, but that guy doesn't hit it well, doesn't mean you can throw it there and try to throw it, right? I mean, that's just just a fact. I still think as a hitter, you have your strengths as a hitter. You got to go to those. As a pitcher, more than anything, you need to be able to go to your bread and butter as much as you can, your strength. And they didn't pitch to their strength. They pitched to the hitter's weakness more than anything. And to me, that 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 was a, a disaster. A lot of fastballs up in the zone. And we've talked about this before. Fastballs up in the zone, you don't throw them way out of the zone if they're balls. You throw them right down the, you know what, right down the middle. And I, I mean, last year we saw so many hanging breaking balls, so many fastballs down the middle of the plate. I'm surprised it was only 258. Seriously, because the ballpark last year it, it, it did not play small. Uh, but at times, um, you know, for the opposing team, it did. That's what it seemed like. Yeah, you know, that's kind of been something that a couple people who are much smarter than I am have done these ana- an- analytic deep dives on the shift and. One of the guys, he now works for the Mets, but he was one of the top dogs at Baseball Prospectus. And he went over all these numbers with shifts. And what he realized is that, yes, shifts, and we now see more shifts ever than ever on right-handed hitters. It used to be just lefties. But, yes, the shifts take away hits. But what negates it is that pitchers throw more balls when the shift's on behind them, meaning they walk more batters, when you walk batters, teams score more runs in bunches. So it kind of washes out in the yeah. end. And I've talked to, you know, whether it's old pitchers, new pitchers, 
as you just said, I have stuff that works for me, but if it shifts on behind me and, you know, as they say in this count, throw this to this guy. Well, if I, (laughs) if if I'm not confident in what I'm going to do, I'm not going to be as effective. No, no. And okay. So let me ask you this, because I think it's important to ask you as a pitcher, someone that gets on the mound. And is it when you're trying to make the perfect pitch, that's when everything usually goes awry. Am I, or am I wrong on that? I mean, part of it is the confidence, as you say, you got to, I mean, not, not even part of it. That's like in 90% of the whole thing being convicted in your pitches. But the moment you're like, okay, this guy can't hit it here. And it's usually like a, like a little spot, right. On that, on that little heat map. And you're trying to be so fine. That's when all the, the stuff backs up on you. You hang a breaking ball or you spike one. That's like 52 feet, not even, not even 60 feet, but you're, you're talking about 52 feet. Uh, it, would that be an, an, a true assessment on that? Yeah, it's called aiming. You start aiming it, and <laughs> and the ball doesn't come out of your hand the way you want it to come out of your hand. And I mean, if you if you you do have to have that confidence and a clear mind and let it go. If you think too much, you're going to be in trouble. And especially all these guys that have such great stuff, um, confidence and perfection. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't. Think about in golf when you're trying to hit the perfect shot in golf. Doesn't happen. You're chunking it or you hook it or you. You got to be able to let it go. And if you don't, it's going to be a disaster. And that really works for all the sports. But I. But but I do like a couple. I mean, Zach Wheeler's a great move, right? I mean, spent a lot of money last off season, but spending some money this season. I mean, that that is a huge move for the Phillies. Yeah, no doubt, and especially for not having to face him. Taking him out of the division, yeah. boy. If you look at the numbers on the on the the guys on the team against him, oof, not good. So good for them to to get him. He was uh, another one of those guys that you, I I met him when he was eighteen years old. He signed with the Giants, you know, as a first round pick in 09. and he was at the park. And I remember I go up to him at spring training. I say, like, "Hey, man, I don't know if you remember me." He goes, "Yeah, I remember you." He goes, "But he goes." You look the same. I was like, you don't like you're bigger. You're even taller, but you're skinnier. You look like, but you have way less hair. And he started laughing. He's like, but I'm like, you still throw the same. Like you're still able to locate that fat. He locates a fastball up, which you rarely hear. He can pitch up in the zone. He uses a good two seamer at times. Uh, you talk about like, whether it's his split or his change, it, it, it'll, it mixes. Yeah. Uh, you know, two years ago was his change up last year was his split. That was money. Uh, good curveball, but the guy competes and he's, he's, he's relatively fresh. I mean, we've all done the numbers on him and Madison, right? Like, why did he get more money than Madison? It's like, well, he's at this time, he's way fresher. He had like a thousand or 1200 less innings or whatever it was of, of Madison. It was like, dang, but that to me, you had, you have guys in that rotation that are like Aaron Nola. You have guys like Jake Arietta, who's not a 94, 96 guy anymore. You had Vince, you have Vince Velasquez who, you know, he's four or five innings and at most, and you don't know what's going to happen. Nick Pavetta's that one other guy that, you know, he could throw hard, but you just don't know what you're going to get. Zach Wheeler throws hard, but you know what you're going to get. He has the ability to get deep into games, to get to the seventh inning, to get to the eighth. I think that's a big thing for, for the Phillies in general. I, I, I do believe that with Joe Girardi, you're not going to see the, you know, go to quick hook, got to go to the bullpen right now. He's an analytical mind. Don't get, don't get me wrong on that one. But from his perspective, these starters can get you through. Why is it? He said, and I, and I fully, this is what I've always believed in, but like if you're Joe Girardi, it actually matters. But 
how do you know that the guy coming in is better against that guy than the, than your starter? Then your starter, your starter, third time through, he has better stuff than your bullpen guy. Why should I go to that guy? And that's a huge question. So you got to you know take into account a lot of things. Zach Wheeler is one of those guys. Yeah, these bullpens year to year, you just don't know. And and hearing you talk about Girardi, and we just had Bob Melvin on, and you know what a good manager he is. It's oh. like we we can talk numbers all day long. But somebody has to be at the front of the bus. Somebody mm-hmm. has to somebody has to manage the human beings. You got to manage the egos. You got to manage the ups and downs. You don't know if your players having issues away from the field. As you said, adult in the room. Somebody's got to manage these people. It just can't be all numbers. And, and, and another pickup that's a huge pickup, D.D. Gregorius. I mean, basically, I mean, to pick him up, I mean, that's like, wow. That, 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 14 that's a mil? Yeah. yeah. Oh, huge. Well, cause in, in what was different though, is I think it wasn't more the DD glorious move. It was okay. So what happens from there? Well, Scott King removes over to second base, Gene Segura, what everyone was, I think thinking was that he was going to be very like hesitant of going over third. He was all in and he looked good over at third base. Scott Kingery is a gold glove second baseman. So you move him into his comfort zone. That is huge. But DD Gregorius, you add, I mean, you talk about a like an eclectic dude. I, this dude had every like the, learned the piano, taught himself the guitar, is a painter, is a photographer. You talk about having a world of everything. Didi Gregorius is that man. He's he is fascinating. It's a great word to describe him. He's fascinating. A Renaissance man. He is. He is. He was bored when he was hurt, and he's like, I got into photography. Um, and you know, he would get press passes to go shoot, you know, during games. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty cool to hear his story, but just to add him in there at citizens bank park, uh, he's going from one hitters park to maybe not as much as Yankee stadium, but, uh, I I think he'll benefit. Yeah. A little different than me. A guy just rides his bike around now and drinks IPAs. I think he's, uh, that's a Renaissance man. My friend, (laughs) that is a Renaissance man. So, you know, I was just in Philadelphia recently in late February and we went over. uh, I've been talking to people about this. I've mentioned on the show how your guys ballpark there is awesome. The Eagle Stadium's awesome. Went to Philly live, had a couple drinks and check that out. But the Fargo Center's right there. (laughs) Yeah, it's all it's all right next to each other. Yeah. Have you done the Gino and Pat's competition? Who has the best cheesesteak? Neither. Yeah, really? I, I mean, yeah, I don't, yeah, no. Tony Luke's is mine if you go outside, but you can ask any player that comes on your show that has played in Philly that they will tell you, hands down, the best Philly cheesesteak is in the visiting clubhouse. It is the greatest sandwich you will ever have. So are they cool when you roll into the visiting clubhouse to get a cheesesteak? Oh, I've done it a few times i can't really <laughs> just been, like you see, look the the media food's great there we have a fantastic setup at citizens bank park but you don't have those cheesesteaks you can go down and get them and and kev down there who who runs the uh who runs the clubhouse he's like open door policy i'm like okay perfect but yeah uh, no yeah. i'm a tony luke's guy i'm not the gino and pats I, I i don't i'm not into that thing the tony luke's is uh i love it because it looks like a fireworks shop on the uh the side of a road and you go in and, and the people there are fantastic and uh, load you up. A uh, ha- had to go do the Rocky steps 
And, did you run them? And no. Um, did you lunge them? I I I just had two cheesesteaks. There's no. I had I had. We started Pat's and went to Geno's. I was so full. But I got to tell you, one of the highlights, even though we you know we went to Hamilton, we did all the New York, we did D.C. the White House, taking pic taking pictures with the Rocky statue. Since we've been watching Rocky Three for all these years, yeah. was one of the highlights of my trip. Okay, so how awesome is that view when you turn around? Yes, and you look right back at 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 you know Center City. The entire, you know, Philadelphia is just downtown. It is one of the prettiest. Like, that is one of the prettiest views. It is It is awesome. I've been there a few times. It's pretty cool. I've ran it every time. And I bet you got to run it. uh, At that point, I probably would have thrown up if I would have ran. Okay, and there's your story. I puked (laughs) at the top of the steps where Rocky was. And it's an art gallery up there. Yeah. Yep. I've never been in the art gallery. And then just not. Not my not my thing, but the stairs are. I mean, yeah. that's art itself. All right, buddy, we miss you, and we'll miss be you uh, too, calling, dude. Hopefully, we'll be calling soon and talking a little baseball. I cannot wait. I, I've written a, a computer program. If you want to really know, you no, what? I wrote a computer program. Yeah. Really? Yeah. It's uh, it's based on my scorecard. All I all I do is type in like three, four, five things, and boom, I have my whole sheet for the day in a minute. Really? Yeah. Why don't you yeah. send that over? Uh, well, you know I am. I'm uh, in the middle of uh, negotiating with the. Uh, no, I'm not actually not even negotiating. So uh, I, I will send it over to you. You can actually send me what your scorecard is, and I can just log in some things and uh, show you what, what's up. And then maybe I'll uh, send you some hoppus. Oh, don't don't tempt don't tempt me like that. <laughs> Do not tempt me like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Maybe 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 you might be getting a little g- uh, gift package. Well, uh, I'll send you it over. I'm working on Tom McCarthy's football uh, call card call sheet as well, so that because I feel like what broadcasters do more than anything is spend too much time writing stuff down instead of talking yeah. to people and getting more stories. Yes. So this is the time saver. You are the best, my friend. Be well. All right, dude. Great to have Franny back on the program. Such a solid guy. We miss him down here in the South Bay. Bud Harrelson, did he get tagged by Ray Fossey in 1973? Howie Rose says no. Ray Fossey says yes. One of the legendary voices in the game of baseball and also for years in hockey from the New York Mets, Here's Howie Rose. Well, he's a legendary voice in our game. Howie Rose from the New York Mets joins us here on A's Cast Live. Thank you so much for the time today. My pleasure, Chris. How are you? Uh, We're doing well, and hopefully we're going to get baseball going here. And one of the teams that's very, very interesting in a very, very competitive division is going to be the New York Mets. Uh, Obviously, the offseason's been a little crazy, but... I look at the Mets from the second half of last year has to kind of give you a little inspiration going into this year, knowing how well you guys ended. Do you know how long ago that seems right now? You know, the second half of last season. Um, Well, objectively, I would say, sure. You look at a good finish like that and say that it generally portends well for the next year, but shortly before the shutdown, the Mets, lost Noah Syndergaard. In fact, it was after the shutdown, it was announced that Noah, and this seemed to come out of nowhere because we saw nothing during the 
exhibition games to suggest that there was an issue, but he needed Tommy John. So he had the surgery and he's out for the entirety of the season. And so you take what was really the greatest strength of the Mets, which was their starting rotation. And now everybody's got to step up a role. And all of a sudden it doesn't look quite as deep as it did about six weeks ago. You know, you never want to go through something like this as a pitcher. And unfortunately with all these guys with the max effort, we're seeing more Tommy Johns than ever before. But I have to look at it from Noah Syndergaard or Chris Sale. If there was ever a year to have to have this, I don't want to look at it as a positive, but this would be the year. If you have to undergo a surgery like that, this would be the year to do it. Yeah, that is one way to look at it. For the Mets, you know, the other side of that coin is that he has one year beyond this remaining on his contract. In other words, he may not get, regardless of what happens this season, a full 2021 in. And so, you know, he's eligible for free agency at the end of next year. And the Mets would like to know exactly what they have before they can even think about getting together and trying to figure out a long-term deal. You know, Jacob deGrom is so special. Uh, You know, he's one of those guys – your heart goes out to him at times because he doesn't get all the run support like a lot of other pitchers. But just what is it like to watch him pitch every five days? It's an absolute pleasure. It's a thrill, really, because you know that at least in the history of the New York Mets, who traditionally have had some really good pitching, you start with Tom Seaver, you go to Jerry Kuzman, you go to Dwight Gooden, and then, really, Jacob DeGrom is the next one up on that Mount Rushmore, if you will, of all-time Mets pitchers. He is that good. And what I love about him is that he is utterly unflappable. I've seen him walk the bases loaded and get out of the inning unscathed. And believe me, that doesn't happen very often. In fact, that particular time in Philadelphia, uh, he was coming off of a mild injury and was a little uncomfortable at the start. That was in the first inning, and that's all he turned out to pitch that night, one inning. And yet he still managed to get out of that. But generally speaking, um, he has been as resilient as any pitcher that I've seen in recent memory, um, he just dares you to beat him, and most of the time they don't. Yeah, you mentioned that Mount Rushmore, and it was a couple weeks ago on MLB Network where they were showing the great series between the Astros and the Mets from 1986 and just a classic game where Nolan Ryan is going up against Dwight Gooden. And you just mm-hmm. you, you forget how electric the stuff was for Dwight Gooden. That fastball curveball combination is is as good we, as we've ever seen. Yeah, his nineteen eighty five season was right up there with any of the great years that anybody every night that he um, that was watching the closest thing really one season of perfection besides the fast that I've ever seen. Yeah, absolutely special. And and I know that 86 team, you know, just watching the highlights and looking at the star power and you add Gary Carter to go along with all the talent that they already had. And, and, you know, one of my, one of my favorite players when I was a kid, Ray Knight is at third base. I mean, it's so much fun to watch these classic games and that's what we're doing right now in the Bay area. We just got through the 1972 World Series, and now we're going to be starting tomorrow night. We're going to have game one of the 1973 World Series, the A's versus the Mets. And you think of that Mets team with Yogi Bear as the manager, and you mentioned some of the pitching staff. Uh, That was a good series, too, in 1973. Oh, it's terrific. In fact, there's always been some controversy ever since 1973 here in New York 
about Yogi Berra's decision to bring Tom Seaver back on short rest to start game six and try to shut down the series rather than go with George Stone, who had had a solid regular season on full rest and have Seaver fully rested for game seven. As it turned out, Tom pitched well in game six, just not well enough. Uh, the A's won that game three to one, and then they beat John Matlack in game seven the next day. But yeah, it was a very interesting series. In Oakland, of course, you'll remember it largely as the Mike Andrews series, as opposed to just simply uh, the middle of the three straight world championships won by uh, those great Oakland A's teams. But it was a, it was a fun series, and for a Mets team that no one expected to be there, considering where they were in late August, uh, it, it certainly made for a successful season that seemed way beyond their reach at one point. Yeah, we had Joe Rudy on last week, and Joe actually said on this program that the Mets were probably the toughest competition, which you think, my God, we're talking about the Big Red Machine in 72, the great Dodger team in 74 with that infield and the pitching. But it was Joe Rudy who said probably the toughest for them was the Mets. Because it all came back to the pitching. You know, the Mets were able to throw Tom Seaver, Jerry Kuzman, and John Matlack as starting pitchers in that World Series, never mind the controversy about whether Stone should have started Game 6. But, you know, you had those three starting pitchers who were, in some cases, dominant. And then you had Tug McGraw, who had a terrific last two months to the season working out of the bullpen. And, you know, some depth on that staff that included Stone and Ray Sadecki, and, and it made for a difficult pitching staff to hit against. And then, you know, Rusty Staub, even though he'd been injured in the uh, League Championship Series, had a great World Series offensively. And, you know, Felix Mion was a pain in the neck, of course, if, you know, trying to defend against him, the way he choked up on that bat and could spray it all over the place. Cleon Jones and others, and, you know, it was a pretty good team. But, um, you know, the A's were in the middle of a dynasty. You, you know, I was born in 1972, so I didn't get to see Tom Seaver in his heyday. I got to see Tom Seaver later on. I remember when he won his 300th game with the White Sox. But when you look at his career and you look at his numbers and you talk about the greatest pitchers of all time, and like, you know, they always have that argument, if you, had, if you needed a guy to win one game, who would it be? Just talk about the dominance and the greatness that was Tom Seaver. Obviously, a guy from here in Northern California. Yeah, still up in Calistoga in his winery, his vineyard. Um, and let me tell you, if you ever have a chance to sample any of that GTS, it is outstanding. But anyway, free plug for Tom and Nancy. Um, th there's never been a more complete pitcher than Tom Seaver. Um, he can beat you in a number of different ways. And by that, I mean that he can be overpowering and just beat you on sheer power pitching. But, you know, he also was so cerebral, and that worked two ways. He could detect in himself when he didn't have his best stuff and work around that. And he could dissect almost like a surgeon could perform an operation on an opposing team starting lineup, identifying who the one or two guys were that he was not going to let them uh, let him beat him on any given day and and just work from a variety of angles apart from the sheer power uh, that the number of strikeouts he came up with in his career would indicate. Uh, I don't think there's ever been a more complete pitcher than Tom Seaver, nor a more cerebral one.
Yeah, always rooting for Tom. He's uh, definitely one of the greats, and uh, no problem giving him a plug on his on his winery. Uh, <laughs> during this time, uh, there's a lot of wine consumption going on, so uh, no doubt the Hall of you Famer, bet, brother. And and he's you a Northern California, he's a Fresno State Bulldog, right? Oh no, did he yeah. go to? Well, I went to. He went to USC, and, yeah. and there were, the reason he ended up a Met was because um, he had. Um, that's a long story, but anyway, he was declared ineligible, and then um, the Atlanta Braves, who had originally signed him, had that contract voided. He went into um, a lottery. A few teams participated in the lottery, and the Mets literally were pulled out of a hat, and that's how they had the rights to him and signed him. Yeah, I remember yes, that. he did go to USC. Yeah, I remember that special moment where he and Mike Piazza were together out on the field, and the Mets fans went went crazy. And Piazza, obviously one of the great catchers of all time. You know, every single Wednesday we bring on Ray Fossey, who's one of our great broadcasters oh, and one of the great A's. Yeah, knows you. And he wanted to say he wanted me to tell you he did tag <laughs> Bud Harrelson. Uh, I tell him to watch the tape a little more closely. Slow it down. They've got super slow mo down. Look, we just have fun. I met Ray the first time the Mets and A's played uh, an interleague schedule. And, um, I, I mean, I just felt Ray's the kind of guy who you meet him for five minutes, you feel like you've known him all your life. Um, I just love talking to him. And you can give him a message for me. I don't remember exactly when the last time I would have seen him was, probably about two, three years ago. Uh, we were scheduled to go to Oakland this year. So, yeah, they came to us. It would have been three years ago. Um, tell him that I just last week, got the feeling back in my right hand after our most recent handshake. He's got the strongest handshake of anybody perhaps that I've ever shaken hands with. And the way we're going, handshakes might be a thing of the past. And for me, in terms of my interactions with Ray Fossey, that's a good thing. Yes, you have to be, like, for anybody out there who's going to interact with Ray, you have to make sure you get your hand in there and you prepare because it's a vice grip. If you don't, he'll crush your hand. I mean, you really have to be conscious uh, of when you go in that you got to get your hand all the way in there and squeeze hard because if you don't, it, it's, it's not going to be a good experience. Well, I would suggest going to the elbow, but then you'll end up needing Tommy John. <laughs> you, you know, I wanted to ask you because it, it's very rare that we have people that do Major League Baseball and have done hockey. They're two different sports. It's two different styles. And, of course, you've done NHL. You've done MLB. What is the difference? You th What's the main difference, do you think, between the two sports when you're doing play-by-play? -play? Well, they're as different as two sports can be for play-by-play. -play. With hockey, you just you learn to control the pace of the game. In other words, if you're a novice hockey announcer, it's going to take you a while before you can sort of edit the play in your eyes and just make sure to divulge and, and describe the most important plays that are going on in front of you, not necessarily every single pass. Um, baseball, of course, you're looking for ways to fill time between pitches, between hitters, uh, sometimes under different circumstances when you're waiting out a, an interminable manager's challenge so th they couldn't be two more disparate sports to broadcast and frankly they're equal passions because they're so different they satisfy a broadcaster in totally different ways and i just love them both i miss doing hockey i really do yeah no i mean we're, we're, we're big san jose sharks fans and dan rusinowski has been our play-by-play -play guy since uh, day yeah. one and uh, uh we always appreciate it. let's end on this so if we do get this thing going 
and you look at the Mets in 2020 and you look at the division, how do you see the division overall and where do you see the Mets in the division in 2020? Well, you know, now you have to allow for the loss of Syndergaard. So that puts a little bit of a question mark into any kind of potential forecast for the season. I think um, we'd probably have to make the Braves the favorite, uh, given their youth and overall skill. You certainly have to look at the Washington Nationals, despite the loss of uh, their third baseman, Anthony Rendon, who absolutely killed the Mets, but they're still quite uh, formidable. And then I think, you know, you look at the Mets and the Phillies, of course, the Phillies with a a new manager and Joe Girardi, and they've added Zach Wheeler, and they've added Didi Gregorius, and and so you put the Mets in that mix, and it can be a four-team scramble. Um, I think right now I would put the Braves at the head of the class, and the other three that I mentioned were the Marlins, obviously well behind in their development. Um, You can probably move them around in any way you want. Well, we, we certainly appreciate the time, and hopefully we will see you in August out here in Oakland. Be safe, and, and hopefully we'll talk to you soon. I hope we get out there, Chris. Thank you. Stay well. From one broadcasting legend to another, Dave Van Horn with the Miami Marlins is a Ford C. Frick Award winner. That means he's a Hall of Famer, and it was great to catch up with him to talk a little baseball and talk about the fish. Dave Van Horn. Dave, Thank you for the time. We really appreciate it. It's good to be with you. I hope uh, things are going well for all of you and everybody's in good health and staying safe. Yeah, and you too down down in Florida. How are things in South Florida? Well, South Florida, as you know, has uh, is an area that has a lot of elderly folks in uh, nursing homes and rehab centers and so forth. And so it's, it's been kind of tough on uh, that community. Uh, in general, uh, Florida is in pretty good shape overall. Uh, that having been said, there's still a lot of people have been lost to this virus, and we're all saddened uh, by that. But uh, uh, we're getting through it and uh, following all of the guidelines set down by not just the federal government, but by Governor DeSantis here in Florida. Yeah, that, that, that is good news. And, of course, we keep getting these reports. We don't know if everybody goes to Arizona. We don't know if they say, okay, Arizona teams stay in Arizona, Florida teams stay in Florida. What are you hearing about Florida and potentially playing games at spring training sites? Of course, you got your guys' ballpark, and you got the ballpark in, in St. Petersburg. Well, I have, uh, of course, like you have, heard uh, several rumors going around about uh, possible play in both places, uh, a setup of new divisions, new leagues, uh, uh, one in Arizona, one in uh, Florida, and uh, that they would uh, go ahead and play uh, whether they are with fans in the ballpark or not. They Once they get the green light to play, they'd go ahead and play. But, of course, to do that, they have to have spring training again. I don't know which one of those plans is the one that's going to uh, work out, uh, if either of them. Uh, I think there have been a lot of ideas thrown out there, but uh, I'm not hearing, at least here in Florida, or reading uh, the quotes from our people, like our president of baseball operations, Michael Hill, or from our CEO, Derek Jeter. I'm not reading uh, where anybody has a strong feeling one way or another to exactly how baseball will go about returning to play. 
you know, let's just uh, act like it is going to return. And we, okay. look at the, we look at the Marlins. It's a very, very tough division. They're very young. But we've been talking a lot here on the program that in a shortened season, it's kind of anyone's ball game. Yeah, it is, uh, in, in some regards, a, a real toss-up. Uh, the Marlins are uh, in year three now of a rebuild. Uh, last year was a very difficult year, going 57 and 105 in the full season, of course. And they still went out and uh, further developed some of their farm system players. They went from three years ago, ranked last in Major League Baseball as far as farm systems were concerned, and they start, if this season does start, uh, they will start at number four. So they've made some terrific acquisitions through trades. They've done a terrific job the last couple of years in drafting, and now the farm system is finally loaded. Uh, Don't know that I should use that phrase, loaded, or that word, but uh, they are, compared to where they were uh, three, four years ago, they're loaded with young prospects now. So that having been said, the setback is, of course, we still don't know uh, when we're going to be able to play. And uh, it was probably the stages of spring training right where we were getting ready to shut down. We didn't know we were going to shut down, but where we were approaching that middle of March area, we could see what the club was going to do. So the top prospects would start the season in the minor leagues, but uh, they're on the fast track. And I'm sure by midsummer we would have seen uh, several of these prospects come up to the big league level. And uh, that would have been a lot of fun because we got a good look at them in spring training. And, and it's fun to watch these youngsters. I, I saw it for years in Montreal when they developed a terrific farm system. And I'm seeing it here. Uh, what they've done in the last three years is just incredible. And to see these uh, young players on the verge of making it to the big leagues is uh, pretty exciting stuff. So that having been said, whether or not uh, they can compete in the National League East as we know it, um, I think they will be better. I don't know that they can compete uh, with the, the rest of the East Division. It is a tough division, as you point out. Uh, but uh, they're going to be better and they're going to win more games. So continuity is always a really good thing. And Don Mattingly get a contract extension. How, how happy were you to see that? Very happy because, you know, when they, uh, three years ago, when they moved all of the top salaried players out, made all those trades and so forth, uh, Don Mattingly never used that as an excuse. He bought right into the program. He, he felt as the baseball people did, that they had to go back to ground zero because they had no farm system, didn't have any young players. All the good young players they had were at the major league level and making a lot of money. Meanwhile, with all that having been said, they were still not able to play 500 or better for eight or 10 years in a row, and they weren't drawing. So they decided to go back to square one, got rid of the the name players that you're familiar with, Stanton and the others, and uh, went with uh, this movement to do a better job in drafting and developing young players. So I, I think that's that's going to work in the long term. And Don bought into that program, and I was so happy to see him rewarded with that contract. Uh, 
so that he could continue because his heart is in it. And I'll say this. Last year, Chris, th- this this uh, club lost 105 games. Of the 57 wins they posted, 28 were comeback wins. They played hard day in, day out, losing a ton of ball games along the way. But Mattingly and his staff, but it was, the pace uh, and tempo was set by Don Mattingly. He kept them playing hard every day, every night. And uh, that's why they had so many comeback wins among the few victories they did have, 57 wins, 28 of them comeback wins. That's almost half of the wins. So uh, he did a terrific job in handling uh, the personnel that he had, and he was very excited to see this spring uh, the number of young players that are looking so good. So, yes, we're all happy for Don. And, oh, by the way, this is the first year that Don is eligible uh, for the Veterans Committee vote. Uh, so there is uh, that uh, coming up uh, during the course of this year, somewhere along the line, whenever they get around to scheduling that. Well, people forget, before he hurt his back, he was an absolute force uh, with the New York Yankees and one of the best defensive first basemen we've ever seen. No question about that. He was a great two-way player and a terrific person. And uh, that should never be overlooked. He, he, he's he's a, a man of terrific character, a great competitor, a wonderful teacher. And uh, everybody that knows Don well and has watched him on a daily basis, as uh, we, the broadcasters, have, uh, ad- admire him and, and pull for him to do well. And to see this thing through here and see this club get turned around and become a a winning product. That's what it's going to take uh, on the field for the fans to start to show up once again. So Derek Jeter, we knew about him as a player. We don't know much about him as an executive. What's it been like Derek Jeter, the executive slash owner of the Marlins? Well, he'd be the first to tell you, number one, he's learning on the fly. And I'll be the first to tell you how hard he works. Uh, He avoids the spotlight. Uh, he does not want this whole process here to be about him. He wants to be, it to be about the young players. He spends a lot of time in that office and with the other employees in trying to improve things, get the team really involved in the community more so than they ever have been. And uh, Donnie, he st- will still come down on the field uh, maybe once or twice a homestand spends very little time in the clubhouse, but uh, he, he will seek out individual players and, and give them a pat on the back usually and uh, words of encouragement. So we do see him a lot, but he, he is, uh, his name is, pardon the expression, the face of the franchise, but we don't see him that often thrusting himself into the, into the public uh, view. So he, he's, he's done a terrific job in trying to get this thing turned around, and he's going about it the right way. Let's end on this. We're going to start celebrating one of the great teams in the history of baseball, the 72, 73, and 74 Oakland Athletics, starting on Friday night at 8 o'clock, game two of the World Series between the A's and the Big Red Machine. When you think back in baseball history, what are your thoughts of that great era and that great team, the Oakland Athletics, who won three straight? It was really exciting stuff, wasn't it? I mean, uh, even from afar, 
during those years, uh, I was broadcasting at the time the, the Montreal uh, Expos games. Uh, by the way, uh, that's where I first met Dick Williams when he coached in Montreal for one year under the Expos manager, Dane Mock. Uh, and then that was uh, a friendship that had gone well back into their playing days in the Brooklyn organization. And uh, so that was interesting. So we always kind of kept a close eye on Dick Williams. And that was a very exciting time. Loved the white shoes, loved the uniforms, and uh, loved the stash. Wouldn't it be great to get baseball back in Montreal? Boy, it, uh, it would, uh, I think, because I, I think they're better prepared now to do things the right way up there uh, than ever before. During the, during the 70s, uh, their first year on the field was 1969, but all during the 70s and into the early 80s, they were doing things the right way. They built a wonderful farm system, a lot of young players, three of them now in, uh, in the Hall of Fame, uh, Gary Carter and Andre Dawson and Tim Raines. And uh, we can even lay claim uh, and some credit uh, for Pedro Martinez, too, because he won his first Cy Young Award as a member of the Expos. And it was Felipe Alou managing the Expos at the time that uh, really uh, did the groundwork to establish uh, uh, Pedro as a as a uh, as a pitcher as a starting pitcher, so uh, uh, some ties there uh, as as well. Uh, uh, going back to those those days, strong farm system, and they did things right. And then it kind of unraveled once uh, Charles Bronfman, the original owner, sold the club, and John McHale Sr. stepped aside, and it was never right after that. Dave, it's an honor to have you on the program. Thank you so much. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you when this season gets going once again. Let's do that, and when when we do that, we can get back to this subject we were just talking about because I should not have uh, omitted mention of the 94 Expos who had the best team uh, and uh, best record in Major League Baseball. So there was a, a uh, another good moment for the uh, ball club, but it didn't last. Okay, thanks a lot. Hey, take care. You as well. Well, that is the breakdown of the NL East. We want to thank Chip Hale, Ron Washington, Kevin Franzen, Howie Rose, and Dave Van Horn. We throw you back to A's cast powered by TuneIn. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.